January 19th, 2014, lecture discussion number 139 on the book of Romans. And um, we find ourselves today continuing with John 12. Uh, and if you're going to do John 12, you've got to do John 11. If you're going to do John 11 and 12, you've got to go to Matthew 26. If you go to Matthew 26, you end up in Mark 14. And then you're back to John 2, which is the wedding. And then you're out to John 19, which is the third saying from the cross. And then you're at Zechariah 11, which is the throwing of the silver by Judas. And now you're at Zechariah 9.9 because of the two donkeys. That's how it works. Got all of that? And that is, as you know, Lazarus, the not Lazarus the and the rich Pharisee, but Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, Simon the leper. Whenever you see Simon the leper, what do you got to do now? You got to figure out he's part of the Simon prophecies are the Simeons. I have the prophet Simeon. I have Simon Peter. I have Simon the leper. Wow, there we are. Oh, that could be true. Thank you. And that's same for this one too, probably, huh? Okay, we're doing technical things for you people in the Internet. There we go. Okay. Anyway, uh, uh, so whenever you see Simon the leper, you have to recognize that he's Simon the Cyrenian or Simeon the Cyrenian, Simeon the prophet, Simeon the leper, Simeon Peter. Those are all part Simeon uh, of the of the twelve of the twelve brothers that are that are the Simeon that is imprisoned by Joseph. So you have all those Simeons fit together. So very very important. But you also the anointing oil that uh, that Mary brings the Judas rebellion again the the Mary the second Mary uh, the woman memorialized her sister Martha a fantastic statement by Christ the poor you have with you always but me you do not have always that's God saying that so you got to figure out what he means then you have the burial of the body of Christ because he says the anointing unbeknownst to Mary the second Mary the, the anointing is for his burial. She thinks the anointing is for him, uh, for the guest of honor. And then we have the uh, donkey colt mystery, if you will, that comes uh, immediately, Zechariah 9.9. And then we have first Mary and the wedding in John 2. That's what that is, again, uh, so that you can help and uh, start following along with it. And last week was our first attempt at this. And today will be the second. And as usual, no promises as to how far we're going to get but first, a couple other things have been repeatedly coming across my desk. That's just the way it goes now for me. I get phone calls and I get emails and sometimes real mail, which is very exciting. I like real mail best. I don't always have time to answer it, but I definitely try. And it's really cool to get actual mail. But people have been asking me uh, uh, the same question over and over and over again. And when that happens, and it kind of fits into the topic, which I notice is a great uh, occurrence, uh, not a great occurrence, it ha- that occurrence happens consistently, I've learned that it's advisable to take them on. Somebody has figured out that Matthew 5 and what we're currently talking about in John 12 have a relationship, and they want me to explain Matthew 5. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And by, by the way, how long does it take to explain the Sermon on the Mount? Holy mackerel. Uh, um, 
So I'm going to take it on a little bit for the sake of those who are troubled or perplexed by it, uh, by a particular verse in the passage. And it's not unlike where we are in John 12:8. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Which, as you know, that, that verse is hardly ever uh, interpreted correctly. Uh, it, because the first thing you have to do is you have to take this word poor and, and what do we have to do with that? Who said this? Christ said this. So that means I've got to figure out what he means when he says poor. What are the chances that he means what, you, what we mean? Nil. So what is God's definition of poor in the context of the anointing oil? And his burial. Who is the poor to God? And again, I recognize that I have money in this discussion because of Judas. Um, and we're going to get to that in a moment. I, I have poor people are defined differently. But when God is talking about poor with respect to himself in this sentence, because he's contrasting the poor with who? So you will have the poor always, but me. So he's, he, the poor and him are contrasted. So who are the poor? Are they the ones who have no money? Let's just make it as clear as I can. Are the poor, when God is talking about them in 12.8, are those, are those the people uh, who have no money? Is, in other words, is John 12.8 is his statement that he makes to Judas, for goodness sakes, he's talking to Judas. Because I have a rebellion of all the disciples. They're all thinking that Mary shouldn't have wasted the anointing oil on God. Can you waste the oil on God? No. But they think so. Because Judas tells them, and they follow him immediately. Remember, I was talking to, to, to Big John here. Earlier, Judas ends up in the place of honor at the Passover meal, and he gets the sop, which is an extraordinary thing. It's a sign of great love. Christ is telling Judas that he has great love for him, knowing all along that Satan is about to enter Judas, and Satan essentially is in the room. And Judas and Satan have this very complex relationship. Anyway, I'm, ne I'm seldom... Is caught by surprise anymore by the number of people who are preoccupied with their own money and they project money into the Bible and everywhere they can in as much illiteracy as they can possibly cram into it. And they are convinced that, uh, that Christ is talking about people who have no money here. This is all about uh, what we would call the, uh, the traditional view of poor people. And, and they think that the third saying of God, for example, uh, from the cross, John 19, 26 and 27, woman, behold your son. They think that's also about money. So they rush to this money thing. Uh, and thus, by logical extension, that John 12, 8 is also about money. They would combine the two and be logical for them. But I want you to know that God and Judas are having this conversation Judas, who's, a guy, who's eventually going to be the only person in all of history entered by Satan himself, is having a conversation that has completely caused a rebellion among the apostles, turns them into saying that any anointing of Christ is a waste. Now, incredible statement doctrinally. See, understand, 
that God and Judas have what's called a multi-level conversation. In other words, simultaneous, Jesus Christ, because he is God, is able to do this. Nobody else does this. It can't be done. Christ is able to talk up here with Judas. At the same time, his words mean this down here to all kinds of people. And it doesn't make him necessarily wrong. But he, he's having a, the, the same words mean something completely different to him and Judas than they do to the apostles and the disciples, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon. So I have two, I have a multi-level conversation happening here. What I want you to do is try to figure out the highest level, what the highest meaning is. Give This is fine down here. I tell the story all the time about Mike, who I was told by a great theologian that his job was to only learn this part down here. Theologian told Mike in a cliffside service, and his man is a brilliant, brilliant man, one of the great scholars of all time. He told Mike, he said, you can't understand this conversation. You can only understand this one, Mike. You're dumb. Who was here besides me? You guys were here for that. Do you remember that? You can't do it. And Mike is just, we all know Mike. He's not here. That's why I can talk about him today. He literally was flying around the auditorium on fire. He could not believe this man would tell him this, but he did. And, of course, you know I disagree. I think you can do this. You have to know God and Judas are having a multi-level conversation. So, in other words, they're talking to each other and they're saying something that means this. At the same time, everyone else thinks something completely different at a much lower level. And yet both of them would be somewhat accurate. One would be absolute accuracy. The other one would be possibly accurate, if that makes sense to you. So let, let me repeat that. Uh, elevate the meaning of their words beyond the temporary. Uh, Judas and God do not talk simply to each other. They're very complicated uh, conversations every time they do. And, and I repeat this as well. Our money doesn't mean anything to God. If God were to show up today at your house and you said, look, God, here's $20. It doesn't mean anything to him. He's the possessor of our all things. Our money has no value to God. He does not define our worth based on our collection of paper and shiny rocks and, and shiny metals. I mean, it's silly do not walk up to God with your rocks and tell him how important they are to you. What a shame. See, he would see your level to be very low. Uh, and I, So understand that he doesn't think our way, right? Or your stuff. Look at my stuff to God. Don't I have a cool collection of stuff? So, and now you understand that the 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, when Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver to the temple potter, Zechariah 11, can't say that enough. When Judas does that, 
he, he's not concerned about how much money that is. The money doesn't mean anything to Judas. He has Satan inside of him. How much power does he have? He doesn't need any money. How, what level of intelligence is this combination of Judas and Satan? It's extraordinary. Do they need 30 bucks? So start thinking about those conversations that Judas is having with God at that level and, and, and get rid of the shallow level as much as you can and it'll actually begin to clear up and make sense. And by the way, the, the fact that God doesn't care about our money is really clear from Revelation 3.17 where the Laodicean church boasts about its vast collection of paper. We have all kinds of paper. We have lots of paper. We're so happy. We have piles and piles of paper. What is paper? Ink and tree pulp, right? We have all kinds of pulp with ink on it. We are rich. And what does God say? Well, the the church says the the end of the age church with their vast collection of of tree pulp and and, uh, ink says, I am rich and have need of nothing. I have all this wood product. I have piles and piles of paper. By the way, what is the difference between our currency and newsprint? Chemically. If you broke it down chemically, what's different? Yeah, if I started to evaluate the newsprint, well, I could tell maybe the difference between, I have cloth in there, I've got other elements, but basically I've got the exact same thing. I have a whole pile of newspapers. That's essentially what you got. And you're saying, I'm rich. Because all that is is an agreement that it's got value between two people who can't agree really on anything ever anyway. But that's another story. The Federal Reserve System. What does God think of the Federal Reserve System? Does he think that that makes you rich? What is his definition of rich? But this is the church. They declare we have a big pile of paper and we're rich and we need nothing. And Christ says to them, no. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He tells them they're poor. Hey, wait a minute. They got lots of paper. Or they may even have shiny rocks. Maybe they got a bunch of melted down metals and little squares. God calls them poor, wretched, blind, naked. He does not call them rich. So understand what poor means to God and what rich means to God. Begin to think about it and figure it out. And then you can start understanding what Christ is talking about in John 12. So immediately notice the opposite, by the way, the characteristic that, that emerges. We call ourselves rich. He calls us poor. Uh, the Laodicean church more specifically, they call themselves rich and, and he calls them poor. Well, what they think is rich, what we think is rich most of the time from a human standpoint He thinks is poor, and what we think is poor, he then likely thinks is rich. And all that matters, and again, that's Lazarus and the rich man, or the rich Pharisee, um, um, which one was poor and which one was rich in that, as, as God defines it. All that matters is what God thinks, what the judge thinks, what we think, if we think at all. We usually are opposite of God, and if it is opposite, it's useless, it's valueless, cast it out. Try to think like God. That's what he tells us to do, right? Figure out how I think and you think that way. How, how good will your life be? 
you do that. He never promises you that you will have money. Why doesn't he promise you money? There are, there's, a, there's churches all over the world that are getting lots of paper and shiny rocks and little blocks of metal accumulating them because they're telling people that God wants you to have money. He wants you to get health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine is what it's called. You will have, you come to our church and you give me money, the pastor will say, then God will give you money back. Implying that God cares a lot about paper. About agreements between men. It's indefensible biblically, but it's very popular. I'm not surprised by that either. Okay? And all of this, by the way, is very similar to Matthew 5, 21 through 30, which we're going to get to in just a second, where Jesus declares himself to be God, something that he is continually doing. If you get anything out of all the time that I have spent standing up here, Jesus Christ is always telling you that he is God everywhere. You will find people, you will find churches that will say that's not true. It's ridiculous how, how wrong somebody can be. It is absolutely true. And, and in fact, I'm going to say this today. He does it so much. In fact, after a while, you should start thinking that he does it every single time. It is absolutely appropriate to read everything that Christ says about himself or to anyone and assume that it is primarily a proclamation that he is God. It's almost like he never stops. Always. And that is the case, uh, by the way, in Matthew 5. Somehow, somewhere within his words is the truth of his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. He's constantly doing it. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that there's not anything that he says that he doesn't do it. I was talking to a, a, a lady here last week, and, and uh, she asked me, um, she knew somebody that did not believe that Jesus Christ was God, and I said, that is such a shame. I try to do that every single Sunday. Now, how did I get that habit? Because I noticed that Christ did it every single time he spoke. And if he didn't do it, then I assumed I was wrong. About I couldn't find it, in other words. It wasn't that he didn't do it. It's just that I wasn't wise enough to figure out how he did it. And much like knowing his definitions in uh, John 12:8, that is what Matthew 5:21 is. Uh, through 30. Now, it's also true that God says, see, when Christ says, with me, uh, you will not have me, but with me, you will not have me always. Essentially, I said it badly. But he's talking about his Godhood there. He uses the word always. And it's also true, again, God is multi-level. He has unimaginable depth and application. And so one can apply here, one can apply here. Everyone can get something. It's impossible not to get something. But God always calls himself God, always, to reemphasize that. And Christ is doing that on the Sermon on the Mount everywhere. The whole Sermon on the Mount is that, 521 through 30. And being able to see it becomes crucial to understanding what he's saying. And again, much like what he's doing in John 12, 8 with his... Um, uh, you do not have me always. 
But me. He said, but me. And who is he? He's the solution to sin. He's God in the flesh. Flesh, you do not have always. You do not have the solution to sin always. By the way, only God can call himself the solution to sin. You can't be the solution to sin unless you're God. So right there. You have figured out where he did it. And if you don't understand that, uh, refer to lecture 138. I covered it a lot better, I hope. That was from last week. That's for the folks on the Internet. Okay, so we're going to go through 521 and 30 of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. It's something that you've heard and heard and heard and read and read and read, and I hope you did, and I hope you have, because it's really cool when you know something about it. And then I'm going to show you that everywhere in it, he constantly refers to himself as God. And that's his point. So uh, it causes, by the way, Matthew 5, 21 through 30, it causes so many problems because people read it and immediately fail to see that he's doing that, that he's calling himself God, and then they don't define his words with uh, God's definitions. So let's try to be the exception of that today. So I'll read it. We'll start at 521. Really, you've got to go back to 17. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but here's Christ speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, now, you have heard this, but I'm going to say something different to you. So who is, the, who is he talking to? Primarily he's talking to Jews. What's he talking about? Something that people have said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means foolish, you fool, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Let me repeat that because I want you to get it without me first. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother, gift to the altar, brother, has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Let me just really fast. I'm talking about murder, uh, altar, and i got two brothers. Where am I? You think that through, I'll keep going. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him, lest your adversary delivers you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will be, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, it's Christ, by the way. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you pluck, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one 
of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable that you, for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Okay? That is Christ saying, I'm God. Over and over and over again. For today, I just want you to notice that Christ selects out murder and adultery from Exodus 20.13. What's the obvious question immediately? Exodus 20.13 and 20.14. He selects out murder and adultery. That's numbers 6 and 7 of the Decalogue or of the Ten Commandments. And so what should you ask? You should ask, why just 6 and 7? Why did he pick out 6 and 7, murder and adultery? Why not eight and nine, theft and lying, for example? Then ask, why did God say that anger is murder? Insults are murderer. If you insult or if you're angry with somebody, you have violated the murder, the do not murder commandment. Lust is adultery. Looking is adultery. So he took it out of the act and he put it into what? Into the thought process. You even think it, you're guilty. In other words, you have heard that it was said to those those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. No. If you even think about it, you're in danger of the judgment. And notice that shall be in danger of the judgment, shall be in danger of the council, and shall be in danger of hell fire. We've got, got to wrestle with that. And brothers bringing gifts to the altar certainly is a Genesis 4, Cain and Abel reference. Why does Cain and Abel fit here? Obviously, I have murder in the Cain and Abel story. And I have altars, and each one of them brought an offering. Why do I have that here? And then the right eye and the right hand, why not the left eye and the left hand, okay? What does this all mean? And just like in John 12, I want you to start thinking deeply now instead of uh, simply who's saying this. God is saying this, and it is not simple. Remember what he tells us. How long will you simpletons, referring to us, love the symbol? God is explaining what is meant by his Ten Commandments to a bunch of Jews who have been lied to. They've been lied to. They've been told something. It isn't true. He's fixing it. He's contrasting what is true, what is meant by his Ten Commandments. You have God himself standing in front of you, explaining to you what the Ten Commandments would mean. Do you think he knows? And he's saying, you've been hearing from people who don't know. Actually, it's worse. Intentionally lying. He's contrasting it with what everyone who is listening to him has heard. You have heard that it was said. That carries the implication that what was said is in need of correction. Someone is teaching wrongly. And it is therefore wise to find out who the someone is and what they are teaching that is wrong. And obviously, it's who. It's the Pharisees. And what are they teaching wrongly? What doctrine? Salvation. The Pharisees are lying about salvation. 
And, and by the way, which one are they in the Cain and Abel story, the Pharisees? Are they the Cain or the Abel? They are the Cain. And Cain is a what? He's a murderer. So which one is the crowd? If they're not the Cain, who are they? They're the murder victim. He's telling them, you're being murdered by the people who are lying to you. So he knows that they are being murdered. What does he mean by murder? How does he know this? The Pharisees are lying about salvation. Now, why would they do that? Why would they lie about salvation? What is their motive for lying? Do they know they're murdering these people? Ask this, what is the result of someone, what is the result if someone believes their lie? If somebody believes the lie of the Pharisees, they're murdered. They have been murdered by the murderers. And by the way, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, looks at the Pharisees and says they are who? They're, they are a brood of vipers. They're little bitty poisonous snakes. And that means that they're father in an allegorical sense, not a literal sense, is Satan. And Satan is called what by God? A liar and a murderer from the beginning. And the Pharisees are liars and murderers. They're murdering people. By the way, that tells you that you have to figure out what is the first lie of Satan and who is the first one that he murdered. And what, what does God mean by murder? He means not the first death, not physical death. He means the second death. I've always asked that question. Who was the first one that Satan lied to? Who was the first one that believed him and was essentially murdered? Of the angels, yeah. I have an angel that I think it is. I've wrestled with it a long time. I'm not sure that I'm right. Okay, that's not true. I, I am pretty much sure that I'm right, but... But but I could be wrong. No, that's not true either. Uh, probably not. I'll get mail for that. But <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> that's a joke, you people on the internet. I know it doesn't sound like people are laughing here. It's because you can't hear them. There's so few of us. <clears throat> Ask why there's so few of us. Okay. If the lie is believed, then the convert is not believing the truth and now is worshiping the lie and worshiping a, a something that does isn't real. If you will, it's it, worshiping... A, a, they're, they're getting a representation of God that isn't true. People make representations about Christ all the time that aren't true. About God all the time that aren't true. And if you believe that and you worship that, then you're wrong about the character and the person of God. And ultimately, if you're worshiping something that's not true, you're worshiping a, a false Christ, if you will, a human Christ, not a God Christ, just a man and not a God man, then you are in paganism. If you're in paganism, what does God call that? He calls it adultery. He puts murder and adultery together because they fit together. If you're an adulterer in the sense of worship, then you have been murdered. If you go around and convert others to your adultery, that is paganism, then you're a murderer.
and a liar. You're also a thief. What did you steal? If you murder somebody, what have you done? You have stolen their life. So now you, you begin to see why he picks. Uh, and we'll do this with all of them. You can begin to, you, you can see immediately why the pagan make no image. Because that's a false picture of God, right? If they have the right picture of God. You can see why he didn't pick lying. He didn't pick stealing. Because he gets them all with murder and adultery. Have no gods before me. If you have a God before him, what are you doing? You're committing adultery. In a religious sense, in a worship sense. Because adultery has more than one meaning. It has an individual physical meaning. And it also has a higher meaning. He's speaking multi-levelly. Because he can. Because he's who? He can say something and simultaneously it's happening while he's saying it. He does that with the parables of the sower. He's sowing seed and the birds are coming. And while he's telling the story of the sower, it's actually happening. He's on the cross talking about the hind of the morning. While he's talking about the hind of the morning, it's actually happening. He's really good at this. You try it. That proves he's who? God. He's talking about murder and adultery while murder and adultery is happening. Because he's who? God. Okay. And we have to leave that, that part of it that I've talked about there and, but, and find more of this declaration of Godhood. Um, so we'll follow the obvious progression here. First and foremost, in what I just read, Christ is saying to you, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. He does it overtly and, and, and subtly. I'm going to give you the overt. First, do you see Jesus Christ is telling the Jews that something is impossible? What is he telling them that is impossible? It is impossible to keep any of the Ten Commandments. Why? It's impossible to keep the Ten Commandments. So if somebody is saying to you, if you have heard that you can keep the Ten Commandments, and if you keep the Ten Commandments, you will be saved. If somebody is telling you that, they're lying to you. And they're murdering you. Because you can't keep the Ten Commandments. Why can't you keep the Ten Commandments? Well, let's just take adultery and murder. And that will take all of them, by the way, when I do that. Because by just... Presenting the truth of that by elevating it, if you will, to the rightful place that it belongs, uh, you find something out. The Jews were taught by the Pharisees that the Ten Commandments were physically based only. As long as you didn't murder anybody, you're keeping the murder commandment. And you've kept a commandment. I've run into people all the time that tell me I've never murdered anybody, I've never committed adultery, I've never lied. Except for right then, when they said they never lied. But I've had them do it to me. They've told me I have kept the Ten Commandments. And by the way, by keeping the Ten Commandments, I'm now going to do what? I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be saved by my keeping of the Ten Commandments. That is what the Pharisees are telling the Jews. And Christ says, that's a lie and you're being murdered. And if you believe that, you're committing adultery in a religious sense against the God of creation. Again, the Jews were taught by the Pharisees that the Ten Commandments were physically based only. As long as you didn't commit 
the act. You're okay. And Christ says, no, the Ten Commandments are spiritually based. Every one of them. What I mean by that is that, in just using the example of murder and adultery, one is guilty of murder if one has a hateful thought. And guilty of adultery if one has a lustful thought. That's not a physical act. That's a mental property, not a physical property, right? The physical manifestation, the physical act is the result of the mental process. Does that make sense? So the sin is not the physical act. The sin is the mental act. That's what Christ is saying. That's what God is saying. You have failed that commandment and therefore are in danger of hellfire. If you think... A sin has been committed if you think, and it's immediately obvious that Romans 3.10 is now true. There is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all fall short. Because if you think, we don't need the physical manifestation for you to sin. We just need the thought. Therefore, it is impossible to do what? To keep the Ten Commandments. If you think you can keep the Ten Commandments, you are, what's the word I want? M-O-R-O-N. Yeah, you, you, you are so wrong, it is pathetic. It's impossible to keep the law. So that means that salvation must be what? Romans 3.24. Salvation must be freely given by God's grace. And that is the first thing you have to know. He's saying to you, you can't keep the Ten Commandments because it's a thought process. And the the physical act is just the result of the thought process. You think you're sitting at home just thinking about killing somebody and you're okay. You're better than the guy that actually kills somebody. You should rethink your think. Now, second, that was first. Got that out of the way. Now, here's number two. This is a Matthew 4, Ezekiel 28, 16 issue. The first lie of Satan. That's how it fits with uh, uh, John 12, ultimately. Because, you see, all of this Matthew 5, 21 through 30 is prefaced, introduced, if you will, by Matthew 5, 17 through 20 which is where Christ tells the Jews that he did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. What does it mean to fulfill the law? It means he came to what? I'll give you a couple of examples. He came to keep the law. First he tells them, if you have a sinful thought, you have not kept the law and you are... You, you can't, you, you will, you will go to hellfire. You'll go to judgment unless you're saved. You're in danger. If you have a thought. But then he says prior to that, I have come to keep the law, to fulfill it. What's he saying? He's saying that he will not sin. He has not sinned. He will not sin. He does not have A single sinful thought. That's what he's saying. 
What's that mean? Jesus Christ stood in front of them and said, I have fulfilled the law. I will fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the law. I will not have a single sinful thought. Not one thought. He has no sinful thoughts. That's why it's in Matthew 4, Ezekiel 28, 16. He makes the point, again, in Matthew 7, 21, in Matthew 5, 48, that he is perfect and that he is the Lord God himself. And the Jews were astonished. A man stands up in front of them and says that he's God and he has not one single sinful thought. That is fantastic information. Yeah, I'll kind of put it in a picture. Here's Christ. Inside of Christ, not one single sinful thought. What's the implication of that to the Jews? What's the implication of that to Satan at Matthew 4? Ezekiel 28, 16, the first lie of Satan. And obviously, the Sermon on the Mount is amazing. The Jews were rightfully astonished. Unfortunately, we're not astonished anymore. We don't even know what's going on here. We've lost the awe that should come with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I'll give you a really quick example of Matthew 7, 11. Says this, if you being evil, he's talking to the people that are listening. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, you're evil. He's looking at everybody there and he's calling them what? Evil. You're evil. But you know how, as evil people, to give something good to your kids. How much more will your father in heaven give? How much more will God give who has not a sinful thought in him and you are filled with sinful thoughts? You're evil. Would you be offended if Christ came up here and, and, and of course, I would jump off the stage because I'm not an idiot. If he stood up here and told every one of us, listen, you are evil continually. Are you Unless, what? Unless he intercedes. If you have something good about you, where did it come from? If he went in front of a group of unsaved people, he would say to every one of them, you are evil. Would they be offended? Certainly they would if they were the uh, East Coast media. There's a political statement. They think they're great. He calls you evil. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who really is good, not one sinful thought in him, how much more will he give you? And by the way, those of you who think that he will, at the last minute, yank his salvation away from you and you'll go to hell because you forgot to capitalize your name on line 17, addendum 6, page 42. You're calling him evil. You do stuff like that. He's saying he can't be trusted. God called his, uh, his audience, Jesus Christ, God called his audience evil. Then he said, God is absolute, perfect, good. And then prior to that, he said, I have never had a sinful thought. God does not have any sinful thoughts. Anyway, consider that. Do the math on how much more God will give you. But think about Christ has not one sinful thought ever, and he will never have one. God does not have any sinful thoughts. Who is able to, to have no sinful thoughts? Only God can have no sinful thoughts. That has been proven. God is perfect good. 
Now what's the obvious conclusion? If God is perfect good and he does not have ever a a sinful thought, then where do evil thoughts come from? Do they come from God? No. He doesn't have any. And he just said so. And if he said he has no evil thoughts, then who must he be? He must be God. So he's declaring that he is God all over Matthew 5. He's never thought a a, a hateful thought. He's never called anyone a fool. He doesn't do it. In the sense that it is sinful. So, placed into Matthew 5 is placed into Matthew 5 is God's uh, proclamation that the origin of evil, the origin of sin, uh, the origin of of all of this chaos is not God. Isaiah 5:20 much to the dismay of one third of the angelic host who fell with Satan and believed that God is the author of sin, the origin of sin. We have whole denominations that go around and tell each other every day that God is the author of evil. And he says, I am not, right here, Matthew 5. If he's not, who is? There's your Matthew 4, right? And much, as I said, to the dismay of the theologians, and I put that in quotation, who insist that God not only has the capacity to sin, but is in fact the originator and the author of sin. Again, if that nonsense were true, there is no hope of salvation for there, now we can't, have, we can't trust anything. There's no certain promise. There's no Hebrews 13.5. There's no assurance. There's just chaos. God must be perfect for us to be perfected, Matthew 5.48. And Christ is saying that right here. I have never had an evil thought. And I never will. And the only one who can say that is God, so therefore he is saying that he is God himself. Purge and cast out anything that, uh, that you may think that is otherwise uh, that God is perfect good. And Christ is perfect good. Okay. Now, really fast. Let's collect a few more pieces. The fragrant oil piece fits nicely today. Jesus Christ has not even a sinful thought. He is perfect, perfect good. What is required to be perfect good Omniscience is required. Omniscience requires omnipotence, omnipresence, and the reverse, as you know. So now the question of the burial oil. Back to John 12. John 12, 7. But Jesus said, let her alone. Quit criticizing her. Why do you bother her? He's talking about the second Mary, the one who came with the oil. Let her alone, Jesus said, to Judas... She has kept this for the day of my burial. Is what? I just spent a lot of time telling you that he has no sin in him, no thought of sin, no possibility, not a, there's no, no sin of any kind, but he says he's going to be buried. And by the way, um, Mary, Mary, second Mary, has no idea that this is what she's done. She's brought it because it's the way to honor the guest and to demonstrate that he is a perfect man, which means he's God. She may not have put that together. But let me tell you this. His body has no sin, right? No contamination at all. It won't and did not, what? Decay. It didn't go into corruption. It can't go into corruption. 
He has not a sinful thought. So why did Christ then say, this is, this is burial spices. This is for my burial. It's a fragrance, this oil. And, and obviously it's an important aspect because the second Mary pours it all over him. He includes this burial and this spices and this oil in his plan. Joseph of, of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they do what? They bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes. And how much does it weigh, John 19.39? It's over a hundred pounds. Why did they bring that much stuff? And they put it in the tomb. It's in the tomb. And, and then, let me read this part. They took the body, Joseph and Nicodemus. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as if, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. John 19, 40. Add Luke 23, 56. Mark 15, 47 through 16, 1. The women also came with burial spices. I had hundreds of pounds of burial spices. And then I have the anointing oil of the second Mary. Why? Thank you, I got it. A sinless body will not decay, does not decay. A perfect body that never had a sinful thought needs no preservation. Needs no perfume. But God includes it. He's got, counting the oil that Mary covered him, he's probably got 250 pounds stuff. He's marinated in it. And yet his body is sinless. So why? By the way, Pilate marveled that Christ was dead. Uh, Mark 15:44. They told him that he was dead. Joseph came to Pilate and said, Oh, by the way, he's dead. And Pilate went, You've got to be kidding. The crucifixion, the crucifixion process had convinced Pilate that Christ could not be killed. At least he couldn't be killed easily. They tried all day. No impact. Now he's dead? From what? What killed him? Okay, you want the body? Take it. Pilate was right somewhat about what he thought. Obviously, God intended to leave his body entombed. That's the sign of Jonah. Bound in fragrant oils and spices that his body doesn't need. Doesn't need the perfume, doesn't need the preservatives. No sinful thought. Just as Lazarus in John 11 was also bound up. Lazarus needed it. They were afraid to pull the stone in front of Lazarus because he's going to what? Going to stink. Christ cannot. There's no sin. Matthew 5. There's this custom of the Jews that demands you do this. The burying. They want that burying. By the way, as you know, Jews will not, uh, Orthodox Jews do not allow themselves to be what? Cremated. That's correct. Buried. Got to bury. Have a process. Still today. I have a burying. I have the separation of the person from the body. Notice how I say that. The body is buried. The person's spirit moves around independently. In the case of Christ, it did so for three days and three nights. He did so for three days and three nights. In Christ's case, he went around issuing proclamations to all the fallen angels. And back you are to Matthew 4, Genesis 15. And that's First Peter 3, 19 through 22. 
He's telling them that uh, while he is uh, separated from his body by his own power, that he is the solution to sin. And he's also telling them where the origin of sin is. He is not the origin of sin. And he also tells them about the ending and the judgment of sin. So obviously the binding is a key element of the burial, as is the oils and the spices. I have all kinds of people bringing it there. I got a parade. And also obviously uh, Mary, as I said, did not understand fully that her anointing oil also was not just announcing that Christ is sinless and worthy and the solution to sin and therefore God but also and the honored guest but it was also uh, had something to do, as Christ says, with his burial. And it says this, She has come beforehand, Christ says, to anoint my body for burial, Mark 14.9. She did it for my burial, Matthew 26. The sinless body of Christ is anointed with oil for burial. And again, that's interesting because Mary was anointing him as the honored guest, saying he is God. That's Mary's purpose. And that's what Judas focused on. It's God that adds the burial aspect. God intends to be buried and bound and guarded by Romans. Why? And remember, God does things to do what? He does things to save people. He's always saving people. That's what he's doing. So how was this burial binding process, perfuming? Who got saved by that? How about the people putting, uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, they got to be thinking, how many bodies have you done? They're telling each other. I imagine they've done lots of bodies. They know how to do it. They knew what to buy. They knew the process. And now they're going to do it to this body. How's it going? First thing they would notice what? Body looks pretty good. No rigor mortis. No pooling of blood. No smell. We have a whole bunch of stuff here. What should we do? Well, let's pour perfume on him. Why? Let's wrap him to preserve him. Why? They did it anyway. Why did they do it? I submit to you that they were stunned. They'd never seen anything like it. Everything about Christ. No one had ever seen anything like it. No one's ever going to see anything like it because it's God doing it, right? Who got saved by the burial process? I asked people who got saved. Who got saved by the witness, if you will, of the suffering process? A pilot certainly did, I think, I hope. He was, what Pilate does is really, really amazing. He's stunned. No, he died. You've got to be kidding. He puts a sign on him. This is the king of the Jews. Puts it in three languages. He wants, I don't want nothing to do with this. Have you seen what we're doing here? It isn't working. That crucifixion, the scourging process, affected the people doing it and the people watching it. How about the seven saints? Who was affected by that? Who believed based on this testimony? This is a massive testimony. This is the gift of salvation being given. And now we have the burial and the resurrection. And once you've determined who got saved, then you can figure out the meaning. How do we figure out the meaning of the burial? 
because I've got to go, don't I, Terry? How do we figure out the meaning of the burial? You've got tomorrow, you've got to write a paper on why does he want this oil and this fragrance and this preservative for his burial. How are you going to solve it? What are you going to do? What's that? Yes, you've got to go to all the burials. You gotta find all the burials. Elisha got buried. Right? Elisha? I fell on him. He was resurrected. First Kings 13, we got a man of God got buried with an old prophet that lied to him, right? You've gotta start with Adam. Adam is a very interesting uh, case. Uh, you've got to consider Moses' body. Because God buries Moses' body, doesn't he? Why does he do that? And Michael comes and fights Satan over it. So there you go. Get those burials. You figure out what burial means.